1: Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. In three weeks, citizens in nine states have an opportunity to determine the future of cannabis. These ballot measures are not just about legalizing marijuana for pot smokers. They have deeper meaning to the people who really need better access for healing. Legalization will not only improve access for patients whose medical conditions don't qualify under state medical marijuana programs, they will make medical cannabis more affordable, improve access for caregivers, allow for laboratory testing for purity, and help to remove barriers to care. I've mentioned before on numerous occasions that this issue is personal to me. Today, I think it's time I explain. After a traumatic brain event and a four-week coma, my father was diagnosed with neuropathic degenerative encephalopathy and multi-system atrophy. Basically, he was in a vegetated state with a feeding tube, had lost 27% of his body mass. His doctors told me he had two weeks to live and recommended hospice. I found it impossible to believe that a retired Navy officer who had been living independently, flying his own plane, driving his own car, and traveling the world as recently as July would be unable to recover. So I took matters into my own hands. That was five weeks ago. I moved him to an acute care facility, demanded that doctors immediately stop medicating him with benzodiazepines and antipsychotic drug therapy, and I began giving him high doses of hemp CBD, the non-psychoactive form of cannabis. Within one week, he'd removed his own feeding tube and began swallowing on his own. Two weeks later, he was sitting up and started speaking for the first time in two months. At three weeks, he was participating in physical, occupational, and speech therapy And at four weeks, he was standing up and walking with the help of therapists. Now that he's stronger, he wants to do more. He tries to stand up on his own, but he's just not strong enough to walk on his own, so he falls. The facility he's in doesn't have the staff to watch him, so the doctors prescribed Ativan and antipsychotic drugs to sedate him. Within 24 hours, all of the progress we had made had been erased. He's back to where he started five weeks ago, in a vegetative state. I've spoken with a lot of people who are dealing with aging parents in institutional settings. When they ask their doctors about cannabis treatment, they receive the same response that I did, no. Often the people who need cannabis treatment the most, the elderly and the terminally ill, have the least access to it. And that's the subject of this show. I'm excited to introduce our guests, but first, Nate Nichols has an update to add some context.
2: What do you have, Nate? Thanks, Snowden. CBS reports that Americans over 65 use a disproportionate amount of pharmaceuticals. Although seniors only account for 14% of the nation's population, they use more than 30% of all prescription drugs. New York Times reports that seniors are one of the fastest-growing demographics of marijuana users. The National Survey on Drug Use and Health reported in 2011 that about 6% of adults between the ages of 50 and 59 use the drug. That number has doubled since 2002. Dr. William Trout at Harvest of Tempe works to educate seniors about the benefits of marijuana. He has 10 points he tries to communicate to seniors. Marijuana is safer than many commonly prescribed medications. Marijuana is not physically addictive. Marijuana can reduce and possibly replace many prescription medications. There are many different types or strains of marijuana, some of which are available without the high. There are ways to use marijuana other than smoking it. Marijuana-infused ointments can be effective in alleviating arthritis and neuropathy pain. Marijuana does not lower your IQ or cause brain damage. Marijuana can help increase your appetite. And also, the stigma around medical marijuana use is fading. He goes on to point out that seniors are the fastest-growing population of new medical marijuana users and says there is no reason for this other than that it is working for them.
1: That really does put it into context, doesn't it? And I think that... People are going to really enjoy hearing about this, especially if they have parents who are in institutions such as retirement homes or, you know, people who are sick who really could use cannabis. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited to introduce our guest. Shall we get started? Yes. (laughs) In the studio with me today is Tiana Zhang, owner of Sage Hospice and Palliative Care here in Scottsdale, Arizona, and also Sarah Corva, a cancer survivor who now educates patients about cannabis and helps them to navigate the medical establishment to get treatment. Thank you both for being here with me today. I'm really happy you're here.
3: Thank you for having us. Thank you. Happy to be here.
1: Also joining us from Pennsylvania is Sarah Vargas. She's a nurse who is a stage 4 cancer survivor. She opted to use cannabis for her own recovery. She's now the founder of Cannabis Heal Now, an online resource where patients can learn about treatment options. And thank you for joining us, Sarah.
4: Thanks for having me today.
1: And last but certainly not least, I'm excited to introduce you to Nurse Julesy, who's calling in from Las Vegas, Nevada. She's an RN, also trained in kinesiology, and she's the editor of Cannabis Nurses Magazine. She also goes to educate people about cannabis use. Thank you, Julesy, Nurse Julesy. I'm so happy you're here.
5: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much.
1: So I'd, I'd like to um, start with some more sharing of personal stories. And if you don't mind, um, Sarara, let's start with you. You're a cancer survivor, a breast cancer survivor. Can you tell yes. me a little bit about your journey and what brought you into the cannabis realm?
0: Sure. Uh, in 2011, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I'd, ha- <clears throat> I'd had a tumor growing and shrinking and growing and shrinking that I'd been working on with natural methods and natural healers for about three years. And between three and three and a half years, I had a very stressful time in my life. And I, that's when I consider that I turned that tumor from a tumor into a cancerous mass mm. with the stress. So um, when I went to the oncologist, I got the diagnosis of the breast cancer and I went to the oncologist and the um, surgeon and the recommendations were chemotherapy in advance of uh, mastectomy. Oh, we'll do them both, they said, and radiation to follow that. And then if I made it through all that, then rebuilding and five years of tamoxifen. And I said, well, thank you for your opinion. I think I'm going to try this a different way. And I managed to get through it in six months with no chemotherapy, no radiation, no mastectomies. With cannabis treatment? I used cannabis adjunctively to the other things I was doing. At the time, in 2011, the law had just been passed in Arizona, and we really actually did not have access to the quality medicines that we have now, and the concentrates especially, which are the things that are most useful in dealing with cancer. So while I managed to get through it myself using cannabis adjunctively for stress relief and and all the other symptomatic relief and the spiritual development that I had to go through and the forgiveness work I had to do, all of which I used cannabis as a spiritual assist.
2: Interesting.
0: I also, and I also learned about it then in a medicinal fashion using the uh, the concentrated oils, but as I said, they weren't available at that time. But since that time, I've been educating people. I started Canna Heal Now, and that's a non-profit, and I have a couple nurses that work with me, and we try to go out. If people need help, they can call, and we'll arrange to have meeting, an appointment with them, a private one-on-one consultation, and help people to understand if cannabis is going to be something that will either assist them in getting through the symptoms of the chemo and the other things they choose, or if they want to just use cannabis as their method of treatment with other, mm, the other things that go with it, the eating right and the exercise and all the other parts that it takes to make it work.
1: Good for you. And Sarah Bargas, you have um, a similar story, I believe. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey?
4: Sure. So I am a two time cancer survivor when I was 29 in 2009 I was diagnosed with a stage three rectal cancer and I'm a registered nurse. I had a quick treatment plan in place, um, that included chemotherapy, radiation, um, surgery, and then more chemotherapy in the health healthcare system that I was working at in Pittsburgh. I had three small children at the time. I was dealing with an alcoholic husband, a lot of stress in my life. Um, and at the time that's, that's what I thought was the right path to take. So I spent a year, the next year of my life, undergoing treatments. I always say I lost that year. Um, There was a lot of time I didn't know where my children were at. And towards the end of that year, I had a very poor tolerance of chemotherapy. And I couldn't even move from the bed um, into the living room or get to the bathroom. My husband had to carry me from here to there. And I was just very, very sick. Um, But after the end of that year of treatment, I was declared to be in remission um, so I, I slowly gained my health back, and four years later, I was in mid Missouri, and just a routine pet scan showed a stage four a reoccurrence. Um, at the time, mm-hmm. I was living in a very rural area, so I went to two big treatment centers. I went to MD Anderson, and I went to a Cancer Treatment Centers of America, and both of them the, said the same thing: that I had months to live. The location was tricky. Um, near my spine and where the aorta bifurcates into two, and near the renal arteries. So nobody wanted to cut it out because my physician in Pittsburgh said I, I, I could cut you, but I don't want to kill you. And chemotherapy they said had a less than twenty five percent chance of any response. But at the time I already knew that I didn't want to do that those treatment options because I I felt like they were going to kill me. So um, as people with terminal illnesses and diagnoses like that often do, I started working on a bucket list. I said, okay, if I'm going to die in a few months, then I'm going to spend every day and every moment living. So I one of the things I did was I went to the Bahamas and I spent a month at a traditional yoga ashram.
1: Wow. And
4: yeah, it was, it was yeah. pretty transformative. I met people from all over the world, <laughs> but I, um, I also met a guy from Portland who was a grower, and he's, my story was out there. I was telling everybody about it, trying to process it. And he said, have you ever tried Rick Simpson oil? Or have you ever thought about it? And I said, I don't even know what that is. And he said, it's marijuana extract oil. And I said, oh, my gosh, dude. I said, I've never smoked a joint in my life. <laughs> um, I was raised in a strict religion. Like, I, I, I've I, never thought of that before. Um, so I went home, and I started researching rick simpson oil and reading all of the stories about people who were using cannabis therapeutically i started reaching out to um, some of the pioneers in the industry and i thought my gosh what do i have to lose so um actually the the man that i met in portland sent me a sample of rick simpson oil to mid-missouri
3: wow. and
4: i started taking it and my husband and i discussed it and we decided that we needed to move to a legal state so we moved to oregon and i started um, taking all kinds of oil and sorry working in the industry. I met these kiddos with seizures and brain tumors and started seeing like incredible things. And that was three years ago. Um, so I'm still here. I'm a stable stage four with no change, but I've used cannabis oil um, for pain. I've been able to replace uh, narcotics with cannabis oil and i'm I'm still here, so that's the best part of the story.
1: Wow, three years this is, uh, it's, it's so heartwarming to hear your story. I mean, and, and I, I've spoken to so many people like both of you who have survived cancer and cannabis was such a big part of that. I mean, yeah. And, and have you, have you had communication with your doctors, um, Sarah about, um, about your state now and, have you communicated yes. with them so, that you've used cannabis? Mm-hmm. Sorry,
4: yeah, I've had my husband died about a year and a half ago, and I, oh, I'm so I had sorry.
1: To,
4: yeah, I had to move back from um, Oregon to Pennsylvania. So my original oncologist that I had seen the first time for cancer, I started seeing again, and um, every time I have a scan, he just uh, kind of scratches his head. The last time I saw him, he said. You're that girl, you're that patient that makes me question everything I know. But he he yeah. won't admit that cannabis has anything to do with it. Although last time he patted me on the back and said, this is the one that's going to have us all taking cannabis. <laughs> um, so that's the extent wow. of it.
1: Well, it's it certainly is inspirational. I haven't had the courage to go back to the Navy doctors yet and explain about why my father hasn't passed away. Um, you know, I just... I'm not sure that they're ready to hear it because they were adamant about not talking about it even. They didn't even want to discuss it with me. And, I mean, we see this all the time. Um, Nurse Julesy, how often do you see patients that have similar stories?
5: You know, it's quite interesting. Um, My whole experience, I've worked in orthopedics and internal medicine, and then I got involved in working in pediatric uh, trauma ER medicine here in Las Vegas. And in that opportunity with trauma, they cross-trained us over to the adult side, which was like taboo for pediatric nurses. But I am so thankful they did. Because when I started um, triaging a lot of these patients that we would be coming in, I was always that nurse that asked the question, why? Why is it working this way? What's the physiology behind it? And I was noticing on the adult side, just as long as the pediatrics, they were coming in with 10 to 20 different medications, They had um, liver disease, kidney failure, heart disease, uh, lymphomas, cancers, you name it. And yet these medicines that we've been told and taught in Western medicine to use as a treatment option, they weren't working. And I always had that question in the back of my mind. And I think it was the first seed and my first question. And I'm so glad I did ask it because a friend of mine in uh, January of 2010 said to me, Nurse Julesy, did you know that cannabis cures cancer? Mm. And, I, and I started chuckling and laughing, and I'm like, you know, that's a really bold statement. You can't be go around saying that because mm. we really don't have that cure yet. And he goes, oh, but we do. And what it did for me is it allowed me to go home, and I started Googling because I wanted to know why. Is this really true? Mm-hmm. And it opened Pandora's box for me. And it was at a point in my life when I myself got sick, also, and cannabis pretty much saved my life, too. Just like Sara Korova and Sara Vargas, we have these stories out there and more and more of these stories with these anecdotal uh, incidences where people and even with your father Snowden, um, how they're coming back around and mm-hmm. physicians either acknowledge it and they get it or they have this iron metal box over them and they're like, we can't talk about it. This is not normal and they just will never understand it. Um, I have worked with neurologists. I had an experience with one of my patients. They got a hold of me, and they said, would you come with me and talk to my neurologist? <clears throat> and at that time, I was still, I felt, very novice in this area. I'm very well educated in science and medicine, and I know the background like that, like the back of my hand, but I didn't understand cannabis and the science behind it. And at that time, I'm like, you know what? what better way? Your patients start educating you. And as nurses, we really need to tap into that because they can teach us so much. And they did. And I brought evidence-based education. I brought research articles to back up because she was a patient with MS. She was bound to a wheelchair. And um, she started in 2007. And then I met her three years later. And here she is, standing, walking, not even using a cane, just on bad days, that she was able to get off, I believe, over 35 medications, and now she's down to about a core of maybe um, five or six, along with cannabis therapeutics in, in with that. So when I saw this and the physician, he looked at me, and you, you don't always ask them, well, do you know about the endocannabinoid system? Because they, they don't know. They don't. And doctors don't like being told that they don't know things. Yeah. So you have to use a different, interesting approach. So you, you drop off those research articles and say, in a month, when we come back to the next uh, appointment, let's talk about this. And it opens the door for them. And they'll do one of two things. They'll either not talk about it, and you never hear it from it again, or they come back and go, I want to know more. And that's when you know you have a good doctor. Yeah. If you don't have a doctor that responds that way, you need to look for someone who do, does have the belief system like you and fortunately our physicians with being a schedule 1 drug their hands are tied whereas nurses are practiced in our modalities if there's a patient that needs assistance or has a lack of that need we build that bridge for them to create that for them to be able to have access to it and that's what i've been focusing on mm-hmm. safe access and safe safely tested products and we'll go more into that if we have time
1: yeah, I would like to go more into that. Um, I'd like to loop uh, Tiana Zhang into the conversation because you have you have been working in um, hospice and set and palliative care for quite a while now, and um, we had had a conversation, and you said it's not so common for um, for for people to request cannabis, but it's becoming more so. Um, tell me. About Tell me a little bit more about that.
3: Sure, sure. So I've been in hospice and palliative care for over a decade. And three and a half years ago, a little longer now, I started Sage. And I am the founder and creator of it. And I did that because I really wanted to assess and treat patients individually. I feel like a lot of times patients are put in a box. They're all given the same treatment. If you have this diagnosis, it's A, B, C, D. If you have this diagnosis, it's A, B, C, D. And I saw a lot of things in in my particular demographic, in my hospice world, that were done very well. But I saw a lot of areas for improvement. So one of the things that I love the most about having SAGE is to get to have the final say and authority on things that we'll explore. And what I find in corporate healthcare in general, and the more corporate you go, it seems the harder it is, is they've got their parameters, they've got their policies and procedures, and really the individual's thoughts that are in that, the doctors, the nurses, their hands are just tied. Um, They're not open to having discussions. It's just we don't do that. And so one of the things I've loved most about Sage has been being able to take each patient's own particular story, own particular family, own body, and really treat it as that, as an individual. So cannabis has come up for me and my patients um, a couple of times. And I remember the first case was about two and a half years ago. And this poor patient probably called... I don't even know, seven, eight, nine hospices before they got to us, which is a shame. They should have called us first anyway. But, um, <laughs> you know, and and when, once they told the hospice, not even they weren't even asking the hospice for it, but hey, by the way, I use this supplementally because it makes me feel better. They were just, nope, we're not getting involved. We don't touch it. And I thought, wow, what a shame. Mm-hmm. Um, what a shame. Now we are federally run. We are federally accredited. Um, you know, we have to follow all the federal rules. So I cannot write for cannabis. I cannot prescribe it. I cannot order it and be in charge of it. But can I work alongside it? You bet. You yeah. bet I can. And I think that each person person should have that right to choose. Um, you know, in my own life, in my own patients, I've seen some wonderful benefits from people using cannabis appropriately. We talk about all the medications. Medications are wonderful. My daddy was a doctor. He always said, don't be a hero, Tiana. Medications are invented for a reason, when used appropriately. But that goes back to, again, not you know, patients that fall in this category, they don't all need the same thing. Mm-hmm. Not everybody needs the morphine and adivan and you know, uh, everything. Now, they're great drugs, and when used properly, they're very effective. But why not bring something in that's natural, that helps people, and if it makes them feel better, again, I'm hospice, I'm palliative care, I'm quality of life. If you tell me that your only goal that day is to sit out and listen to the birds sing, my only job that day is to figure out how to make that happen. Doesn't matter what we have to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you say, good golly, Tiana, I put this oil on a cracker and then I can in and and take a little nibble and then I can eat my dinner. Who would say no to that? Right. You know, so, um, you know, you talk about sleep, anxiety, pain, appetite, um, loss, this is something that I've seen personally help my patients in all of those areas. And we do have traditional medications that can help. And again, they're effective. But who's to say that this isn't? And right. if this is their choice and this is their course to go that way, I proudly stand alongside it.
1: Yeah, and how, how often do you see um, institutions actually... Uh, try to medicate with sedatives or antipsychotics just to keep, just because they don't have the staff resources to handle it.
3: You know, unfortunately in this day and age, I mean, healthcare is, it's no secret healthcare is in crisis. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's, there's too many people to serve. There's too little people to do it. Um, The money's not going around to the caregivers, you know, it's not getting to the people who, who need the staffing. So unfortunately, and I work with many, many different facilities, um, and I'm proud to work with many different facilities. There's some, of course, that wouldn't come first on my list or second or third, but they're great. But in this day and age, okay, so when you're in a facility, anywhere in a skilled nursing facility, assisted living, residential group home, they're not allowed to have restraints. So they're not allowed to have um, rails on the beds. They're not allowed to uh, have their bed against the wall so that somebody doesn't get up. So a lot of times it's very common that medications are used to restrain a
1: patient. It's it's
3: That's exactly
1: what was happening. Restraint.
3: Yeah, yeah. And 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 again there's that belic- there's that delicate line between how you do that because you know for me and I go in and I assess patients too. I I just had a patient the other day, good golly, bless her sweetheart. I mean She was so, um, just rocking, 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 um, Alzheimer's with aggressive behaviors. She had bitten people. She had scratched people. She even choked a caregiver. And this poor little thing was no more than 94 pounds, but boy, she was going to hurt somebody or herself. Um, you know, in that situation, I've got to medicate. I've got to do something to protect her. I've got to do something to protect her primarily, and then to protect her caregivers, If there were ways that practitioners and providers, healthcare professionals like myself, could learn more and could be able to incorporate other ways, I would be open to that. Because really, i got to tell you, all I want to do is get that patient comfortable. And I'll tell you more than the physical part of it. All I kept thinking of is what is going on in her head Mm -hmm. that she's moving like that. How scared is she? She's got to be absolutely terrified. And it's not an unusual case that I'm talking about. This is not a whoa, once in a lifetime thing that I see. It's very common. I mean, this is what happens. And as we live longer, Alzheimer's and dementia is just more and more common. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, one in three over 65 has got some form of uh, dementia. One, you know, one in two over 75 has got some form, whether it's, you know, advanced progressive or not. So as we live longer, as we age more, and as we, you know, this is not the days of, The grandparents and kids and everybody lives in the same house. I mean, we're all working people. People aren't able to take care of their parents and grandparents and loved ones in their homes anymore. So we've got to rely on these institutions to do it.
1: So um, Nurse Julesy or or Nurse Sarah, um, how often have you seen cannabis replace some of these sedatives like Ativan or even Haldol for people with dementia?
5: Well, I'll go ahead and speak up. Sarah, are you still there with us, Sarah Vargas? Yeah, I'm, I'm still here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> go well, ahead.
5: That's a very interesting question. Um, as I have been introduced to cannabis over the last six years, I see it as um, a first line of defense, and that's where I could see it going. We're not there yet. Uh, as Tiana was saying, we have so many roadblocks coming up right now uh, with our institutions. And it being a schedule one drug. When I first came into cannabis, you know, I always look for solutions. I'm like, oh well this is easy. All you have to do is reschedule it to from a schedule one down to a two, we can do more research or even to an herb. And everyone's all, Jules, that's a brilliant idea, but here's the thing with prohibition. And I and I didn't even understand that. And there's a huge modality behind it. And even though we had the reefer madness of the nineteen thirties, there still is that stigma and a reefer madness of today's society. And it's built off of fear. So how do we get around that is we take that fear and we educate like all of us do, so all the, the Sarah, Corva, Vargas, and uh, thing. We all, we all educate our patients and our institutions, but we have to get the laws changed before we can actually really do some um, help with that. And that's where this um, adult use and recreational laws that are coming up across all the states are so vital. Um, in hospice and palliative care how easy it is for for families when their uh, loved one is coming up with an episode you can send someone to that that adult use facility pick up the medicine and within an hour you can already be treating those patients with cannabis therapeutics how wonderful is that and it's not even with a subscription with a prescription Um, and i see it as an every day over-the-counter med that we eventually will have, just like aspirin or ibuprofen, we can go and pick it up over-the-counter and bring it home to our family members. And that's where I would love to see it move forward into.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say you'd like to see it as a first line of defense, though, um, you know, to replace some of the, the hard pharmaceuticals that really should be a last option, I would think, you know, with um, you know, the Haldol and the Ativan for my father, for example, you know, it seems like all the progress that had been made just went out the window. And had, had I had the ability to um, find a, a better strain or, or um, something that did have THC in it to give to him to see if that took away some of the fear, anxiety and all of those things that caused him to want to get up and, you know, walk out when he really wasn't strong enough to do that on his own and he's hurting himself, et cetera. I mean, it seems like it's a no-brainer, honestly.
5: Well, and let me just say this, too. This is Nurse Julesy talking again. Um, As a first line of defense, um, some of the routes of administration, a lot of our elderly do not even understand that you don't just have to smoke it or vaporize it. We have wonderful products that, I mean, you can have the THC in there, but you can use topicals or transdermal patches. So our seniors that um, can't remember to take their meds on time or and want a safe, uh, low microdosing to start out, that's an excellent way to introduce them to cannabis and, and the options that we have out there.
0: There's also patches and tinctures and many other right. ways that seniors can take in cannabis medicine. It's just a matter of learning how to use it and having, hopefully having somebody around to help guide you through the learning curve.
1: Yeah. Um, Sarah,
0: um,
1: in Pennsylvania, Sarah uh, Vargas, how often have you encountered um, families with elderly parents or um, elderly patients in general who are learning about it for the first time, and what do you tell them?
4: So we legalized this past April, and we're currently working on implementation. Unfortunately, we won't have access there anticipating until 2018, but I, mm. I have had a lot of elderly patients reach out to me. I have people email me and call me all the time and um, I go meet with cancer patients and I've worked with pain patients. Um, they just they have a lot of questions and they're excited to be able to learn about it, but unfortunately we, we will not have access for quite some time. So just at this point it's an educational process.
1: Wow. So, um, I, I I understand that it was medical only that was legalized in Pennsylvania. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, we have seventeen qualifying conditions here, um, and just a medical program so far.
1: Is cancer actually on it?
4: Cancer is on it. So I'll be good once I can get a card here. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, uh, the the main qualifying conditions are pretty specific. We do have one um, catch-all kind of. It's chronic pain that is uh, chronic and intractable pain that is unrelieved by um prescription medication so according to the way that the law is written they have to go through you know the the narcotics and things first and that has to be documented before they can try cannabis which is unfortunate but for many of these patients they have already explored the pharmaceutical meds like myself i was on dilaudid and morphine um around the clock at one point, and fortunately, I was in Vancouver at the time, um, and I was able to replace all of those. I, I was snowed all the time. I, I remember like sitting on the floor and rocking and crying in pain and saying, "My mom had to move in with me," and I like again, I didn't know where my kids were. I had to have her take care of me, and I remember saying, "Oh my gosh, I feel like I feel like a drug addict, and I'm I don't want this. I want to be present in my life." And one day, I was in the ER chatting with the doc that had seen me several times. And he said, well, are you using your cannabis? And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm afraid. At this point, I hadn't explored it or learned about it um, for as, you know, first line for pain relief. And he said, well, use it. And that's when I started to research about how opiates and cannabis can work synergistically and how cannabis can increase the effect of the the opiates and then you can back off of the opiates and over a matter of two weeks I was completely off of morphine and Dilaudid and using CBD high CBD uh, CO2 extracted oil only for pain and again present in my life what a relief that was
1: wow and that wasn't even THC at all that's that's pretty amazing isn't it right wow wow So um, we have a lot to do to educate people who are not in states that have legalized uh, medical use yet. And I'm very excited about this election and I'm I'm just praying that people really understand the value of legalizing it, even in the states where medical programs are in place. And I, I think that Only having a handful of qualifying conditions is probably one of the biggest reasons because this opens the door for other people to explore, but also, you know, the stigma attached to it. Um, Tiana, how often have you um, encountered the stigma? I mean, every time. Yeah. Every time I get that. I actually just was consulting with a patient
3: about two to three weeks ago in the hospital, end stage cancer, uh, tubes everywhere. Uh, but very present. She was very present in her mind and she'd made the decision she was done and she wanted to go home. And so we were working on plans to get her home with nursing care, how that's going to work. And her children brought up the idea of, you know, one of them said, I have a card. Can I go get my mom some stuff? And I said, Hey, I'm going to tell you if if that's what you want to do, I am all for it. Do what you need to do. We need to know. We need to know if you do give it to her. We need to know so that we're Facilitating, and I love that you brought up the comment about the opioids and the marijuana together because I have seen that yes. it's mm-hmm. really effective. Yes. And um, they brought it up to their dad, and he just immediately shot it down. Immediate- oh. And it was just sad because he, he was the nicest. We should all have a husband that loves us that way. Let me just put it that way, or a spouse or a partner because he could not have been more devoted to her.
1: But the stigma alone, he wouldn't, he just couldn't explore it. Wow. That's, it's really, it's really tough. And Mm -hmm. that's, again, I think why the education is so important. So, Sarah, tell me, um, Sarara, I mean, tell me a little bit about the conference that you have coming up. It's an educational conference for medical practitioners, correct?
0: Yes, that's right.
1: For continuing medical education credit. Yes, that's right. So it will be accredited in that way. Yes.
0: Tell me a little bit about it. So we've got three, it's in Denver, Denver. From November 14th to 16th, we've got three full days scheduled with the foremost researchers and doctors and practitioners in the world coming to Colorado to talk to doctors and nurses, and also a separate section for bud tenders, so the people that are actually on the street with the pe- with the patients. So the education's for the doctors, the nurses, other practitioners, and bud tenders. And we've got people coming in from Israel. From, that have been doing practicing with cannabis for 10 years in a clinical yeah. setting, and they're coming to talk with their research. We've got Dr. Guillermo Valesco coming from Spain. Um, he's going to be talking about cancer research. Uh, we have Dr. Donald Abrams, who's the foremost cannabis cancer doctor in the country, maybe in the world. Um, we've got a pharmacist from Illinois, Joe Friedman. He's a dispensary owner and a pharmacist. So he's coming with a very unique perspective. So it's really an amazing program. I could go on and on about the different talent that's speaking, but suffice it to say that if you really want to learn about cannabis medicine, this is where the professionals are learning and teaching. Yeah, and, and, and is it valuable for people who are not medical
1: practitioners to actually come and listen?
0: Absolutely, and the price is less because there's no, if they don't have to pay for the CMEs, they come in as general admission fascinating information they will learn fascinating things and there's an expo so there's going to be booths and you know there's products people can learn about and um, my product will probably be coming out at that time also I have a new product which helps people to um, deal with too much THC if they're just learning how to use cannabis medicine it enhances the body's natural ability to counteract the effects of cannabis. Right. So right. it's uh but that'll be coming out in November probably also and that'll help people. And I yeah.
3: just have to say I've been peeking at your brochure while you were looking at it and as a healthcare provider as a hospice company, I saw MDs and PhDs on there. And I think that's really important to say mm-hmm. um because as we talk to different physicians um, I love natural medicine. I've always practiced natural medicine, but if you if we're going to go to the big dogs, if we're going to go to the MDs and those kind of people, we've got to go MD to MD for a while. And, and right, this is right. all MDs on here. It's very
1: impressive. Yeah. And I that is so important. I think peer-to-peer education. We had an interview, when was that, last week with Dr. Donner, mm-hmm. who has a a similar conference in April that he's doing for CME credit. Awesome. And... You know, he was he was saying the same thing, that it's so yeah. important for peers to educate peers about this.
2: Absolutely. And he was talking about a lot of conversations he's had within the hospital, too, even about educating other doctors and mm. just about their unawareness, even as several people have talked about today, about even the existence of the endocannabinoid system and what it really does. So,
1: Yeah. Yeah. Nurse Julesy, that's something that you're trying to educate people about, too, aren't you?
5: Well, it is. And when I had gotten into this, and I started going to a lot of the conferences, uh, my first one was Patients at a Time, American Cannabis Nurses Association, which is an organization for nurses. So if you are interested, you can go in and um, work with them at a legislative level. level. Because we're really trying to make cannabis nursing is not actually even a specialty of nursing at this time. Um, So they're focusing on that. However, I was recognizing when I go to these places and these conferences, all these nurses across the country are doing such phenomenal work in their communities. Um, so, I came home and uh, one of my uh, or my colleagues, said, "Hey, Jules, how about Cannabis Nurses Magazine? Let's use this as a platform. You talked about the education and the research. Let's put it in an easy-to-read format for people to learn, or for nurses to learn from." And that's what we did. We started it a year ago. You can go on to www.cannabisnursesmagazine.com, and all our issues are available for free online. And we wanted to go green, but what was happening is these nurses and patients were getting a hold of these magazines going, I want to give this to my doctor. How do I get a copy to him? So patients literally are going online and subscribing their doctors up to this magazine, and um, (laughs) actually it's an educational tool. They read it. It's in the office for their patients, and um, it's starting and stimulating conversation, and that's what we want, is that conversation to be started. Because when I first came into this, I was, I'm was i one of those nurses, I find something out, I have to tell the world, okay? You yeah. can't keep me quiet. And I, I did not fit at that time because I opened Pandora's box. I could, didn't fit into their model anymore. I, it wasn't like that perfect square anymore. I was like goo going everywhere, telling everyone. And they're like, you can't do that here. And at the, and I'm like, well, then I don't belong here anymore. And at that time I got sick. So I really had to heal myself too. Um, I have degenerative disc disease. I had a MRSA that they gave me from a staph infection and in my right iliacus muscle. I almost died from. Mm. Um, and my kids too. I remember my kids, Sarah. And I. so at heart, sitting on my hospital bed and my sed rates up to 123. I'm on six different um um, antibiotics, and I was literally dying in the hospital. My son, my five-year-old son, comes up to me. Hey, mommy, are, are, are you going to die? And at that time, you know, I was like, "No, son, I'm not. I'm going to be here to help raise you." And I didn't even have cannabis in my life at that time. Just like you, Sarah Vargas, we had to go through that Western med bullshit. Excuse my language, but we had to exactly. go through that Western medicine rigum and roll. Uh, just to try and save ourselves. And because we were younger and healthier, our immune systems were able to keep up with those poisons in our bodies. Um, but when I did discover cannabis, and it was time for me to actually, and that's how I ended up pulling myself out of direct patient care. A lot of nurses are like, how do you do what you do with consulting and, 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 and everything and keeping your license going? And I had to pull myself out of direct patient care. I, my hands were seizing. I'm in the middle of a, a, a trauma and as I'm putting the IV in, my left hand seizes on me and I'm, I made it through it and got him off to surgery. But then I knew it was time to heal me first so then I can go out and heal the world. And I am provide we provide information and education. Our brains work wonderfully and it works even better. I've been more productive on cannabis than I have on any other medicine in this is
1: it yeah. isn't that so, amazing and i'm Great. so
5: grateful Great. so I, I i it's there it's a resource utilize it and we're here to educate the nurses but we're also educating and empowering the patients and caregivers
1: yeah and awareness is always um uh key to removing the stigma getting people to right. actually you know open their their eyes open their dialogue with their doctors open their hearts um You know, to accept something that's not conventional, you know, it once was. I mean, for thousands of years, people were medicating with cannabis um, and hemp, you know, uh, medical marijuana with the THC and hemp. It was widely accepted.
0: It's the first recorded medicine
1: in the history of human beings. And it's also um, one of the most widely used industrial substances you know, for years and years and years. Hemp Hemp fibers. Hemp fibers, yeah. And in fact, when was that? Nate, you might know, um, I think that they just found an ancient Chinese artifact in which they pulled out a fibrous material. It was a textile of some sort, and it was actually hemp fibers, and I think it was, what, 4,000 years old, something like that? I can't remember exactly, but definitely in that era. Yeah, but in, in recorded human history... Hemp is probably the oldest known industrial um, substance. The you know, first Bible was printed in it. You know, the the Declaration of Independence was drafted on it. Um, people don't realize that it is so much a uh, part of our history in general. That you know and and what an amazingly successful horrible propaganda campaign reefer madness was in 1937 because it's it's created this generational memory of something that's an evil substance and you know honestly when you look at it and and when I look at all of you who are here who have gone through some kind of health trauma and you've found healing and found new life with cannabis it breaks my heart that we we can't get the information out fast enough. And you know and like oh, I said but
5: we are now. <laughs> we
1: are now. Yeah. And it's it's just so important for people to start talking about it openly. It's no longer the elephant in the room that you have to kind of step around. It's really out there. And it's, you know, our job as media people, right, Nate, to get the word out. Absolutely. So Anyway, but I, I find the, the stories that I'm hearing so incredibly inspiring and you know I, I um, really look forward to this election and what are you what are you all doing? Let's start with you Sarah Vargas. Um, I know you're in Pennsylvania, but are you actively um, going after people who are skeptical right now to try to educate them? how do you handle that?
4: Um, yes, I'm I'm always educating. I often wear um, T-shirts that say uh, you can cure your cancer with cannabis leaf and things like that. And I, wow. everywhere I go, people in my little community, people know me and I'm always talking about cannabis and its healing properties. I think when people see people like us, like I'm a nurse, I'm a mom, I don't look like what they're idea of what someone who uses cannabis looks like Mm -hmm. it that alone opens the door for conversation well not only that
1: but surviving cancer
4: well that's what i was going to say then i tell them my story and then they look at like it's a they look at me again they're like wait a minute what you have cancer like you look great and you look like you're you're healthy and you're you know and that it changes everything. So that's that's part of my goal is um, opening that door for education. And that's how I get rid of the stigma is is by talking to people about cannabis everywhere I go. And it, I've had a lot of people say that I've changed their minds. So um, it's been very rewarding, very satisfying
1: work. Yeah, um, Tiana, where do you see the future of um, hospice and palliative care going in terms of cannabis?
3: Well, because, again, we are federal, it's Mm -hmm. going to take a lot, lot longer. But I will tell you, I will tell you in my personal experience, there's been several physicians that I've had the pleasure of meeting who are more and more open to it. It's not a conversation to shy away from. And a lot of the physicians these days, uh, especially, you know, if you look into oncology, uh, they, they want their patients to feel better. They really do. So I'm finding that a lot of uh, practitioners that we're working with are open to it, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, that's the start. That's the start. As far as where we're going to go, I don't know, federally? I don't know how that looks. But um, it would be great if we could incorporate something that works for people. I mean, I would just love to give people that option. I've got to tell you, you know, I I meet with with patients and, and things all the time. They say, boy, you know, they're in a facility. I wish I could just have a glass of wine. I wish I could have a shot of Jack. We write an order. They can have a shot of Jack. They can have a glass of wine. Why not? Yeah. I mean, I had one lady. She was 102 years old, and she was diabetic. She says, when I get to heaven, I'm going to eat a pint of Rocky Road ice cream. I said, hold on. <laughs> Went to the store. <laughs> got her some ice cream and said, here you go. You're going to get a little tired. I'll sit with you for a while, but we'll be okay. Um, you know. So, so that's the extreme. I love hearing about you guys and the healing properties because uh, in the spirit of honesty, I haven't really experienced that side. For me, it's been more about quality of life issues, pain management, um, symptom management, which is huge to me. That's all my goal is every day. So to hear the healing properties is very new for me. It's very exciting. But for me, on my experience, as far as the symptom management, I love it. I love it. If we can find something, if we can incorporate cannabis, and it helps people manage their symptoms better in, in
1: a way that's their choice, that accommodates their lifestyle, mm-hmm. that's amazing. That's cool. And do you feel the um, passage of, in Arizona here anyway, Prop 205 and other legalization measures around the country – do you think that's really going to help you in in um, opening more doors for patients to request cannabis treatment?
3: Sure. I mean, I think that the stigma of legality is a huge part. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people, myself included. None of us want to do anything that's in- illegal. Right. Um, so we all have those boundaries, right? I mean, we've all jaywalked. Mm-hmm. We've all, you know, <laughs> there's there's kind of those boundaries of how illegal can you be? There's right. a lot of laws. You know, you see those things on Facebook about all the ridiculous laws. It always makes me laugh. You know, you can't had a pig on thursday or whatever it is but the stigma of it being illegal is still a big thing so when we can raise that then i think it's more open to conversation again because i am federal my hands are kind of tied as to where i can go
1: but can i agree and can i accommodate and come alongside absolutely yeah um nurse julesy how's the how let's take the temperature of nevada do you think it's going to pass there
5: oh gosh you know it's really interesting uh we have MPPs going across the country just trying to, there's nine laws coming up, Nevada's one of them. And I had the privilege of going on the Nevada delegation to over to Colorado to kind of see what they were doing over there. They didn't like me, the delegates didn't like me being with them, <laughs> but I just bulldog my way in, because as nurses, we need to be a part of that and kind of understand what really is going on. Now, if we see the trend, Washington State and Colorado went recreational at the same time. Both of them have their medical programs. And some of them have um, the testing set up, where in Colorado, for a bit there, they only had the recreational tested and not the medical part, so then they finally got that caught up. Unfortunately, in, in, in Washington State, as of July 1st of 2016, their medical program pretty much died because recreational came in, uh, the, everything that they had worked towards for the patients and getting good quality, like, RSO oils to the patients. Now it's the recreational side where you're having more of the smoking and the flowery bud, which is still good. However, we're lacking those needed uh, routes of administration like suppositories and transdermal patches and the real RSO oil sublingually and tinctures. Um, So recreational, we need to learn and watch what history did in Washington State because the legislators in Colorado are saying Within five years, they see the medical program dropping off. It'll kind of be there, but the recreational is going to be pushed in. And in the state of Nevada, um, the Alcohol and Tobacco and Firearms Commission wants to regulate that. And what people don't realize is, if that does come in, how does that affect our medical program? No one, the medical, the patients are in complete hysteria. They don't even are not even voting for it to pass. And it's interesting because uh, we want this freedom, but when it limits you to a zip code, if you're 25 miles within a dispensary, you can no longer grow. Um, if um, uh, certain types of dosing, they're trying to put limits on uh, dosing mechanisms at the recreational level, and it, it's still going to give people access, but it's going to be at a uh, in, in Nevada at a possibly a more expensive rate, so there's some hesitancy. But at the same time, For a hospice and palliative care patients, my gosh, if you can send your family member down to go pick up something really quick to help them ease that, or even a VA veteran uh, going to have access now, I say yes to it. But at the same time, being a medical provider, I'm always about the medical side of cannabis because there is a science behind the plant. And I, I really think they're trying to squish away from that and say, oh, you can go have it recreationally. I'm like, well, that's still preventative medicine. Whether they're consuming it recreationally, they're consuming preventative medicine. It is an anti-inflammatory, it's a neuroprotectant, and an antioxidant. These three studies were from the government that they performed. They just don't want that information released to us and the people, that it's so beneficial.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny you should mention that, because a lot of people don't know that in 1994, the U.S. government filed for a patent, um, I don't have the number in front of me, but they were actually granted a patent um, for use of cannabis as a neuroprotectant and a neuroregenerative um, substance. And yet the federal government that owns that patent will not acknowledge that there's any medical use whatsoever of cannabis, which is why it is still Schedule 1, because that's what it means. It's, it's very interesting, isn't it? A lot but, of
0: hypocrisy.
1: It, yeah. Well,
5: it is hypocrisy. And I go back to the old saying, I know we're free thinkers in America, but at the same time, it goes back to power and greed. And uh, the pharmaceutical companies are making a lot of money off of sick patients and the yes. dying. And I almost think it's almost human genocide with what they're doing with our with our care system. Thank you. Yes, a yes. lack of access. Um, so in, in a hundred years from now, they're going to look and go, oh my gosh, they had human genocide in America and they didn't even realize it at the time. Yeah. I realize it and, and it makes me angry. Oh, it and makes so me angry too. We just have to educate that much more to get over that fear and that stigma mm-hmm. when you release that fear and the understanding
1: yeah, that it's a Nate. What was the name of the phar- was it Insys, the pharmaceutical company here yes. that actually put like five? What was mm-hmm. it, five hundred thousand?
2: Correct, and they're manufacturers of fentanyl, which is a powerful opiate, and they also own the patent on uh, what used to be known as Marinol, which is synthetic, uh, synthetic THC, that's THC,
1: which developed. has its own, you know, kettle of problems. And it's
5: killed many, many patients yes. from
0: overdose.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which cannabis has never. Yeah, cannabis. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, um, the Emperor of Hemp, Jack Herrera, once said, no one has ever died of cannabis that wasn't shot <laughs> in, in the course of committing a crime. <laughs> yeah, and, and actually, that is very true. You know, uh, there, it's impossible to overdose, really, from cannabis. It won't kill you. Anyway, well, I am um, so grateful to all of you for um coming in and and sharing your stories i i plan to put information about each and every one of you on our website so it'll be up when we put the episode on our website at um the cannabis click on broadcast and look for today's episode and and you'll be able to read about what each and every one of our guests today are doing so um I guess it is time for us to wrap it up. We're getting the signal from Windy West, our producer. <laughs> so I'd like to personally thank our guests, Nurse Julesy, Sarara Corva, Tiana Zan, and Nurse Sarah Vargas for sharing their incredible knowledge and insights and personal stories with us today. If you'd like to learn more about them, again, please go to thecannabisreporter.com. And I also would like to thank our very own Nate Nichols for the Marijuana Minute update and contributions of all your insights. He's truly an expert and a gem. Thank you to our producer, Wendy West, and the team at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine. And many thanks to all of you for listening. Tune in next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day.